Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. More protests are scheduled for tonight in Puerto Rico, and they've spread throughout the U.S. Governor Ricardo Rossello held a lengthy press conference yesterday and refused to resign. My responsibility is to continue working and provide you with these results. One will always face different challenges. This is a big challenge, but at the same time, we must fulfill our objectives. At issue are 900 pages of chat comments between the governor and 11 top aides that denigrated just about everyone you can think of, including LGBTQ community, the blind, the obese, the dead from Hurricane Maria, the governor's political opposition, of course. The chat comments also revealed a cozy relationship with special interests. They were released by the Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico. And the controversy follows the Justice Department's announcement last week that six government officials were charged with steering contracts to politically connected consultants. With me is Professor Yarma Bonilla. She is Professor of Anthropology and Puerto Rican Studies at City University in New York. Her upcoming book is Aftershocks of Disaster, Before and After the Storm, and it's being published by Haymarket Press. Thanks for joining us again, Yarma. Thank you, Jerome. Always happy to join you. I This is kind of an astounding occurrence that's happened here in Puerto Rico. Uh, So many people have gathered and are uh, protesting the governor and want him to resign. It seems to be something that has welled up from some kind of deep feelings about the, the governor and the ruling class in Puerto Rico. Yeah, absolutely. It seems sudden and spontaneous, but really this has been brewing for years. And, and the, the chat that was released, um, what people are calling Chatgate, you know, the, the kind of digital version of Watergate, um, it's really not just the chat, what people are upset about. It's everything that the chat demonstrated and pointed to and all the frustrations that it raised and the offenses that it raised from the things that people have been dealing with since the hurricane and even before that. So I think it's important to say that it, that it's not just about the chat and, and the, the insults and, and mockery of the chat, but about all the other problems of governance that preceded. Well, what is it about the ruling class? I mean, we, we have kind of a similar situation. It mirrors something in the U.S., uh, you know, uh, a ruling class that seems uh, above things. And Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating, the parallels. Um, with what's going on in the U.S. And I think it's telling a lot of people had been frustrated that the governor had not been more confrontational with Trump after the hurricane. And I feel like now it makes more sense because we see that they're very similar characters. I mean, in both instances, we see a kind of thin-skinned relationship to the media and then the attempts to manipulate the media and to only, you know, uh, have access to certain... Uh, preferred media outlets. We see misogyny. We see homophobia. We see racism, uh, you know, gender violence, state violence. Um, so all of these, all of these preoccupations that the U.S. public at large has, they're the same preoccupations that Puerto Ricans have. But then on top of that, you add concerns about colonialism, about the anti-democratic nature of our current situation with the fiscal board, about frustrations with FEMA and the reconstruction. And so all of that has come together in this moment with what has been revealed with the chat and with also the FBI arrest that uh, took place right before the chat was released. 
What kind of role could a governor of Puerto Rico play if they were well-intentioned? I get, you know, because the fiscal control board seems to control so much that goes on in the island, and the governor uh, seems helpless in a lot of regards, but he does end up steering these contracts. And the, the contracts that they were uh, about last week with the Justice Department, they're in the education realm, which is like a hot button issue in Puerto Rico. People think he has real agency here. Well, at, at first, let me say, yeah, the, the two arrests were in education and health, which are just, you know, such central areas of, of governance and areas where the governor did have um, agency and leeway. And so I think that was what began, you know, people's anger and frustration was to see how really central um, services and agencies were being mismanaged. Um, and already there were, you know, people were saying that his government has had collapsed just with those arrests because either he knew what was going on or he was such a bad governor that he didn't know what was going on. So in any case, he had already lost legitimacy. Um, and then with the with the release of the chat, um, it, it's true that there was a question of how much power does the Puerto Rican governor have right now when he has this oversight board. And he also has, um, you know, a lot of uh, particular oversight of reconstruction funds and all these things kind of limiting his ability to govern. But at the minimum, Puerto Ricans would want an advocate, you know, someone who cared about the, the island. And so I think that the fact that he showed such little empathy, that he mocked the dead, I mean, how how much lower can you go, you know? And no one was spared in the chat. He mocked women. He mocked the disabled. He mocked, you know, people with health conditions. He, he mocked the elderly, uh, everyone that, that he should be caring about and, and concerned with and trying to, you know, advocate for vis-a-vis -vis the fiscal board. Um, none of those people were of his concern. And his only concern was with, was with his image, with his reelection, with how he was being represented in the press, and also with ensuring contracts for, you know, his friends and for those who were well positioned. And so that deep, deep betrayal, even in a moment where maybe he didn't have a lot of agency, but but to not even, you know, have the dignity, you know, to care about the people who voted him into office. I think that was just too much to bear, especially after people had, um, you know, put up with so much and, and dealt with like a year without electricity, thinking, well, you know, we have a governor. Some people thought we have a governor who's trying the best he can, you know, the, his supporters still believed in him and thought that he, you know, he was facing really difficult challenges. But then when they see everything that's revealed in this chat, they, they say, well, you know, he wasn't even trying. He was making fun of us. So I think, you know, it's, it's to be expected the kind of ire that this has awoken. I'm talking with Yarmar Bonilla. She is a professor of anthropology at City University in New York. And we're talking about Governor Ricardo Rossello in Puerto Rico. He held a lengthy press conference yesterday. He refused to resign in the face of 900 pages of chat comments that seemed highly inappropriate. And I noticed, you know, in his press conference yesterday, he argued that, well, this is all inappropriate, but it's not criminal. I've done nothing wrong here. Do you cut him any slack on that? Well, first of all, who is he to say if it's criminal or not? I mean, he was the one engaged in it. Of course, he's going to say it's not criminal. 
I think this needs to just be submitted to a, a, an investigation by the proper authorities. Um, and it doesn't cut any slack because it's also um, it, it's um, immoral, it's inhumane, it's not it, it's not dignified of the office, and he has completely lost legitimacy. And there's a lot of people are seeing a lot of irony here because he's saying. Well, I was I was elected by the people, um, but he he also had been someone who had been very vocal um, with Venezuela and trying to oust the president of Venezuela, even though that president was also, you know, democratically elected, you know, quote unquote, or, or however you want to think about that. So his kind of claims to, to try to hold on to power they're ringing completely empty for people here. Um, and so I, I don't think he really has any shred of, of legitimacy left. Well, and, and to my mind, it's not really a matter of whether he will be removed from office. It's just a matter of when and of what will happen after, which is, I think, what is really going on in this delay is he's still trying to figure out how to come out of this with some kind of dignity. And, and there's also a lot of... Um, negotiations happening about who will take over from him. Do you reflect much on the comparison to President Trump here? Because obviously he says a lot of inappropriate things uh, every week is uh, something new inappropriate. And nobody uh, gets out in the streets and says, well, you should resign. People seem to uh, cut him slack. Well, I wouldn't say nobody goes out in the streets. You know, there were the women's marches. There have been a lot of demonstrations. Um, and a lot of people have called for him to be impeached, have said, you know, that he doesn't represent them. So I wouldn't I wouldn't minimize um, the people who have protested against Trump in the U.S. However, I would also encourage them to stand in solidarity with Puerto Ricans and to be inspired by by Puerto Ricans struggle for democracy and, and for, you know, put putting forward a popular agenda and to saying, well, okay, you won an election, but now your legitimacy has been lost, you know, and it's time for you to step down. And we're also, the other thing is that this, you know, as all social movements, they develop and transform, you know, in the process of their unfolding. And so initially this began as an, as a call for him to step down, but as it becomes clear that him stepping down might just lead to someone else just like him taking power. More and more people are calling for um, new elections, for some kind of new democratic mechanisms that we don't currently have in the Constitution for dealing with these kinds of crises of, of power. Because what we have in place are, for example, if, if a governor is, is incapacitated, has some kind of health emergency or something like that, um, we don't have um, mechanisms in place for this kind of complete political collapse. Um, and some people say, well, how will you bring that about through popular action? But I think, you know, we're going to figure that out. That's what we're going to find out, how we can, from the streets, pressure um, to create constitutional reform, democratic reform that maybe will not be achieved this week, um, but maybe can be achieved before the next elections. Um, and so that it, I think this is going to have real significant long term impact in Puerto Rico, which was desperately needed. I, can you say something more about the uh, people who are coming together in this? I know that a rapper who's extremely popular, his name's Bad Bunny, and he's coming home for the protests. And uh, Ricky Martin is in the streets. He was mentioned in, in the chats. And there's uh, all sorts of 
age groups coming together? It's, it seems to cut across all, all stratifications in Puerto Rico. Well, this is the biggest achievement of the governor is that he has united us. Um, he has really managed for people from all ages. Um, yesterday, there was a demonstration of women in their 60s and 70s who went into government offices and took down the pictures of the governor from the walls um, in the in, in front of the governor's mansion. These motorcycle groups that are not known for, for being involved in political protests, they joined the protest. You have athletes, um, you know, a, a, a celebrity athletes that have also um, called for the governor to step down. You have these musical figures, some of them who are known for taking political positions like um, Residente and even Bad Bunny, who had had already some engagements um, with political issues. Um, but someone like Ricky Martin, a pop star who was not known for being political, it, he got so offended and he was named in the chat. Uh, the governor made fun of Ricky Martin, which is just, you know, uh, the, the, he is so beloved here and has has no tarnishes against his reputation. So all of these figures have come together um, and it is not the usual suspects. It's really a broad movement um, of everyone that has been offended, not just by corruption, but by the mismanagement of the aid, which also that came out in the chat that he was you know, using the distribution of aid for photo ops instead of being concerned um, with what people actually needed. Um, people who have been really upset about how the deaths ha were, the death count and how that was managed. So basically all the discontent that has been brewing um, against also uh, gender violence and gender against LGBTQ communities, um, all of that has come together and all these different groups are united right now. Now, tonight's uh, protest should be very large, and it's in multiple places in Puerto Rico. It's going to be in multiple places throughout the U.S. It's, and the world. And the world. The, world. the yes. diaspora is on it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes, no. And it's, this, is our, this is also very historic because traditionally, and this is a problem, um, most political action tends to be concentrated in the capital city. Um, but already... Uh, somewhat spontaneously, people have been taking to their public plazas wherever those plazas are, um, be it in uh, Aguadilla, Mayagüez, or in Washington, D.C., Minnesota. You know, uh, I, I've seen protests all over. And, and sometimes, like, I, I saw different groups of students at different universities. Sometimes it's a few people. Sometimes it's a really surprising amount. Um, and everyone is expressing their discontent. And also, it's moving beyond just the governor. Uh, in San Juan already, I had heard the chants, you know, Ricky, we want you to go and we want you to take the junta with you. Um, in the town of Ponce, I heard, Ricky, I want you to go and I want you to take Mayita, which is a, a, a mayor from his political party. I want you to take Mayita with you. So I think slowly, you know, uh, the, the, the political agenda of this movement is growing because he has become a symbol of all these broader problems. Um, and, and people are expressing all of that. 
There was a protest that started a half hour ago here in Chicago, and we'll see where all these protests lead and whether Governor Ricardo Rossello hangs on or resigns, as people are calling for. Thanks very much for joining us. Professor Yarma Bonilla is professor of Puerto Rican Studies and Anthropology at City University in New York. Her upcoming book is Aftershocks of Disaster Before and After the Storm. It's coming up from Haymarket Books. Thanks for joining us, Yarma. Thank you. Si hay sol hay playa, si hay playa hay alcohol, si hay alcohol hay sexo, si es contigo mejor. Si hay sol hay playa, si hay playa hay alcohol, si hay alcohol hay sexo, si es contigo mejor. That's Puerto Rican rapper Bad Bunny. He came home from Europe to help lead today's protest in San Juan. Puerto Rico. So we'll keep our eye on that situation. Last week on our trip through the Great Lakes, we visited Detroit and we talked with people involved in grassroots activism there. After the break, we'll return to Detroit and hear a segment we recorded at the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to nurture community leadership. It's been at the center of activism in Detroit and the region for decades. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're in Detroit, where we've been looking at community organizing. And with us is Rich Feldman. He is a community and labor activist. He's a member of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership. And they have been doing grassroots activism here for a good lick and inspiring another generation to do it, too. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having us here. It's a real treat to be here and to have this opportunity to share some of our stories. For people who don't know who James and Grace Lee Boggs are, give people a thumbnail sketch. Essentially, and we're sitting at the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center uh, to nurture community leadership right now, and there are two pictures. There's a picture of Jimmy Boggs and Grace Boggs. Jimmy Boggs was an organic intellectual who was born in 1919, raised in Marion Junction, Alabama, as he would say, in a town where white folks were gentlemen and ladies by day and Ku Klux Klan is by night, and folks were lynched on a regular basis to teach them how to act during the rest of the week. Jimmy comes up north and gets involved in the labor movement, works at Chrysler Assembly, uh, Jefferson Assembly Plan for 28 years, works with CLR James and both communist parties, socialist parties, and then in 1963 writes his classic book, The American Revolution, Pages from a Negro Worker's Notebook, which is really calling for the next American Revolution. And he proceeds to work with Grace and eventually forms the National Organization for an American Revolution, but always saw himself as governing and taking responsibility for the city of Detroit and for the country. And he really believed ideas really mattered. Now, uh, one of the things the book posited was that uh, we were going to have a labor force without labor. The, the machines were going to take over and we were going to have to think of what to do and how to be 
a active person in our communities without jobs. So Jimmy, in 1963, prophetically puts forward, as he saw the robots coming into the Jefferson Assembly plant, he said, for the first time in human history, people will not be needed to work as we know it. And the J-O-B system is coming to an end. And at that point, he says, there will be an underclass and an outsider class created. And if we prophetically look forward to what's happened over the last 50 years, we see a billion people displaced around the world. We see, in fact, a combination of the drought and in Latin America, the displacement of people off the land, NAFTA off the land, technological displacement, all part of even the, quote, the movement of people from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere, let alone in the United States, where we see over 2 million people in prison, and we create these prisons so we have a place to put people who are no longer needed to work. So Jimmy said we have to figure out what does it mean for people to be human, and work is part of that. So what kind of work will people do in the 21st century? So you just marked the 100th centenary of his birth, and you had a big conference that went for days. A lot of people were here. Uh, Tell us something about that. Well, the theme of the conference, because a lot of folks, and your listeners in particular, know of Grace Lee Boggs. In fact, there was a women's Asian collective that came from Chicago to spend the, the entire week with us for the, what we called the JB100. And people knew Grace because Grace lived to be 100 years and 100 days, died in 2015. And she called herself a philosopher activist. Jimmy died in 1993. So we decided as a board that it was critical that James Boggs be brought into the proper relationship with Jimmy and Grace because that's who they always were as a team, as partners. Actually, the first event was an event on Saturday. People came from across the country and folks from Detroit, obviously. And we joined with people in a Silence the Violence march where there were probably four or 500 people marching against violence, talking about the importance of creating community, the importance of responding to fear with love, Then on Sunday, we had our major event at the Charles Wright Museum, where Danny Glover was here, Robin Kelly was here, uh, Clementine Barfield, who founded the Save Our Sons and Daughters, Julia Putnam, who's the principal of the James and Grace Lee Boggs School, Ed Whitfield, who does an amazing work on sustainability, and um, the Gordons, who do tremendous work on concepts of black power, Lewis and Jane Gordon and international discussions on France Fanon. And all of them discussed the lineage and the legacy under a community conversation with Steve Ward, who wrote the autobiography of Jimmy and Grace. I'm talking with Rich Feldman. He is a community and labor activist and a member of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership. And we're talking about the center and the couple's legacy about community leadership here in Detroit. Now, you mentioned people are probably more familiar with Grace Lee Boggs. She was on uh, Democracy Now! There was a documentary made about her. But she came from a place, uh, even before she met Jimmy, where she was having a lot of uh, radical Marxist involvement. Uh, explain how her philosophy moved and changed over the years. Well, Grace Boggs, but used to read a book every other day and summarize that book and write excerpts. And we used to send it out to people across the country when you used to do things by snail mail. And um, Grace Boggs went to Bryn Mawr and Barnard. Uh, She was a trained 
academic philosopher and did her PhD on education. And when she got out of school, they weren't hiring, as she would say, too many Asian American women in, in, in the philosophy departments or education departments of universities. She goes to work in Chicago and she meets there the black movement to challenge the government to create an opportunity for blacks to be working in the defense industry. And the A. Philip Randolph March on Washington was what her initial organizing was around. And then after that, she gets very involved with C.L.R. James. And she's one of the early people to translate Karl Marx from German into English, the um, philosophical manuscripts, economic and philosophical manuscripts. She works within the Socialist Workers' Party and the CLR James and all of them split because there's always lots of splits uh, in the old left movement. She and Jimmy, CLR James and, and Jimmy, are really discussing and emerging this concept of this critical connection between racism and capitalism and the birth of them together as one, not as separate entities, which is how often Marxist-Leninists look at that history. And then they put out a magazine in Detroit called Committees of Correspondence. She met Jimmy at a political Marxist educational seminar. Eventually, they got married. After Jimmy died, she was looking to find someone to write Jimmy's biography. And they said, why don't you write your own? And when that happened, Grace began to find herself and discover and create herself based on her own Asian and women's identity, as well as her massive involvement in the black movement. In the documentary, Angela Davis says Grace Boggs probably did as much for the black movement as any black leader because she worked so closely with Jimmy Boggs as he was writing and with all the black leaders, uh, Malcolm X. Uh, Jimmy and Grace brought Malcolm X here with Reverend Clegg and the Henry Brothers to give the message to the Grassroots Leadership Conference in 1963 after first working on the I Have a Dream speech that King came in 1963 in August, which he gave here first and then goes to Washington. So they saw the importance, the critical primary struggle of the freedom movement, the civil rights and the black power movement as the basis for upending and turning over and revolutionizing the country. And then after the rebellion, and they made a distinction between rebellion and revolution. And a rebellion is when we legitimately stand up against the injustices of our society. But a revolution is when you have projections of where you're going, and you become the leadership that you need to become. So they began to make a distinction between a rebellion and revolution. Because up until then, folks believed rebellion automatically lead to revolution. But when we had the uprising and the insurrection in Detroit in 1967, and the rebellion in 67, it didn't lead to revolution. And they were always reflective. They always believed that ideas matters, reflection matters, and that you had to think dialectically. So Jimmy and Grace were the journey of how do we think dialectically about constant change, how is the world changing, and how do we find our place in relationship to that. And what they always said was, you don't choose the world in which you live, but you do choose how you will respond to that world. And that was the gift that I was given uh, as a young activist when I was 20. I'm talking with Rich Feldman. He is a community and labor activist and a member of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership. And we're talking about the center and the couple's legacy about community leadership here in Detroit. Now, tell me about how that 
philosophy translated into the James and Grace Lee Bog Center to nurture community leadership today? Because right now, you're out there inspiring grassroots activism, people doing their thing, making their world what they can. I think it's critical, the question of the significance of the Bog Center and how did it emerge to be a place where ideas matter, where relationships matter, and the belief that, as Jimmy said, what he would say is he and Grace were nobody except in relationship to a whole lot of other bodies. So we believe the concept of a movement comes from the emergence of the grassroots work that takes place. And it'll take many, many, many forms. We believe we're at the end of an epoch in human history that began back in Europe with the birth of the slave trade and capitalism and reductionist thinking and so forth and rationalism, and we're at the birth of a new culture and a new way for humanity to potentially live. It doesn't mean the next system will be better, but that's what we're committed to. So what happened in Detroit, and Detroit because of deindustrialization that by 1980, you have massive technological displacement, you have massive destruction of the auto industry because of global competition, you have the energy crisis, and you have the destruction of Detroit taking place, and then the attacks in response to the rebellion, the white rage that comes out, is the massive racism and the treatment of Detroit, and in many ways similar to the way Puerto Rico has been treated, where we can now look at how, um, if we think a little harder, can see how the countries of Central America have been treated, particularly during the Reagan period and what follows after the challenges to the revolutions in El Salvador and Nicaragua and, and Guatemala and so forth. What happens in Detroit is, in the 80s, is most leaders, we have the election of Coleman Young, which is a tremendous election. It's the first black mayor in a city of a million people. And he clearly challenges the segregation and the racism of the police department, the education, all of the infrastructure of a city. At the same time, his vision and the ability of the corporate system to still have control is a challenge. And he puts forward the need for the creation of a plant called the GM Hamtramck plant, which we called the Pole Town plant in 1980. And that led to the destruction of 5,000 inhabitants being pushed out, evicted, using eminent domain so they can build this plant that promised 6,000 jobs. It never did that. It got all the tax abatements, all the normal stuff that was happening in Chicago, across the country. And in that, we struggled to say that community was more important than J-O-Bs. And Jimmy writes a piece called A Job Ain't the Answer. Jimmy and Grace write a piece. And then after that doesn't create the jobs, Coleman Young says, we're going to have casinos. And he promises 50,000 jobs. In that struggle, we join with other people. And we have referendums that actually stop casinos for a couple times. And then casinos get created in Windsor, which is only across the river, south of Detroit. And once that happened, there was no way you can stop casinos. In that struggle against casinos, Coleman Young says to us, the movement at that point, the resistance, you are all naysayers. What do you stand for? And Jimmy gives a speech and writes an article called The Alternative to Casino Gambling. And in that, he puts forward the need to have a vision for a post-industrial city. And he puts forward the need for small factories, small bakeries, urban farming, what we now call Peace Zones for Life, which were really anti-violence committees so that we create communities that 
our communities that don't need police, talked about new kinds of work in the neighborhoods and community production. And this is before the miniaturization of technology. So it's before um, the iPhones of what's so possible and before Fab Labs and Fab Cities movement gets evolved and so forth. So all of this is being put forward. And then in response to the crack epidemic in the 1980s, where there were not many young high school and college-age students, we started something called Detroit Summer. Jimmy and Grace and others initiated this process because we were finding ways of how do you put the city and the reimagining of cities as the center of the national struggle in the same way that Du Bois said at the beginning of the 20th century, the challenge of the 20th century will be how will we struggle against racism and white supremacy, both between the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, and how we challenge it within the United States. Jimmy said the greatest challenge of the 21st century will be how will people live in cities. Prophetically, that turns out to be really a question we're going to continue to grapple with. So what that initiated was something called Detroit Summer, and it was based on bringing young people together to reimagine, redevelop, and redefine Detroit from the bottom up. And... Hundreds of kids, young people came in during the first few years. It's it's continued on in different forms over the decades. And it began to a way to introduce young people to urban gardeners who were the gardening angels, who were elders from the black community who had come up during Jim Crow, but brought forth with them their relationship to the land and relationship to nature and relationship to food. You know, Detroit is a place now where... You'll have a chance to meet Myrtle Thompson-Curtis, who does Feed and Freedom, where her theme is grow a garden, grow a community. If you can go to the west side, you'd see the Detroit Black Food Security Network, which is a five-acre urban farm that's now getting ready to launch an amazing co-op and building for incubator for really creating food security in the city. There's over now 1,500 community gardens in Detroit. There's something like 20,000 people are related to the community garden. And it's not a white hipster community garden thing. These are folks that comes out of the history of Detroit, of the legacy of of African-Americans moving from the south to the north. Then you have artists and the mural movement because the young people in Detroit summer did murals. All the things that folks now see as part of creating service, we saw as both intergenerational conversations, as youth leadership to build the next American revolutionary movement. Rich Feldman is a community and labor activist. He's a member of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership. Can you tick off a few of the organizations that have been inspired by the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center? I don't want to use the word inspired by the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center because that means we're taking more credit than what I think the times have challenged people to do We've created a safe space for some conversations, and some of the folks that have emerged and some of the leadership in some of these organizations have been significant. Um, But it's much, much more a presence and a documentation, because the gift of the Jimmy and Grace Leibog Center is the amazing documentation and writings, and now even the magazine called Riverwise, which is based on the belief of moving from emergence to convergence. So with that, I'll start with Adrian Marie Brown, who wrote a book, Pleasure Activism, most recently, and Emergence to Convergence. 
moved to Detroit, was inspired by the philosophy and the thinking of Grace Boggs, Meg Wheatley, and Octavia Butler, and has launched an entire relationship and lots of political work across the country that talks about self-reliance and community building. Julia Putnam, who is the current principal of the James and Grace Lee Boggs School, was 16 years old when we met her in Detroit summer, the first year. As she says, she was the first volunteer. And that's a school on the east side where the young people wear T-shirts that say, We Are Solutionaries. And they've had marches through the community that say, Critical thinking is good, and we're critical thinkers. And they do a lot of oral history in a relationship to the community place-based organizing um, because they see leadership growing from the first time everybody in any age can make a contribution. They don't have to wait till they're like finished school or something like that or became an elder. The Allied Media Conference, a number of the people who have been active leaders moved it from Ohio where it was first taking place to Detroit because of their relationship with Detroit Summer. And some of them were leaders and media folks as Detroit Summer went through a media phase. And Freedom Freedom Growers, Ron Scott, uh, who you'll meet later, you'll meet Myrtle. Ron Scott, who was a founder of the Black Panther Party and one of the creators of this concept of Peace Zones for Life, was on our board. And we worked to be supportive of seeing the need to struggle against the external enemy of police violence, as well as the internalization of the values of capitalism and violence, which means we have to really, really find the way to create safe spaces. Because we not only have to talk about power in terms of governing, but we need to talk about power as transformation. And uh, we have to create power in our communities. So these institutions start to do that. We work with folks who are doing New Work, New Culture. We had a New Work, New Culture conference after the U.S. Social Forum here in 2010, where there were 20,000 people here. And the contribution of the center was this, and this might sort of summarize it. The first U.S. Social Forum in Atlanta had the phrase, another world is possible, another U.S. is necessary. When it came to Detroit, because of the work of Jimmy and Grace, the Allied Media, the school, and so many other folks who are creating Malika Kini and the Detroit Black Food Security Network, which has had its own evolution from its own history of working in the black community and the black nationalist movement, put forward that the phrase would be, another world is possible, another U.S. is necessary, another Detroit is happening. So the importance of vision and what we call visionary organizing is really, really critical. And that the visions folks have from the past of the 20th century revolutions is not good enough. And that's what we see in, among the Zapatistas in Mexico. It's what we see with the Rojovo folks, Rojovo women in Kurdistan. Uh, and across the world, people are having this conversation. If you close your eyes about local sustainable community production and redefinitions of democracy... You see it happening across the world because capitalism has reached a new stage that has destroyed the nation state beyond anything we could have imagined or I could have imagined when I was 20 or 25 in the other century. I would say that we've got to redefine democracy, that we have been stuck in concepts of representative democracy, that we believe that it's getting other people to do things for us, that we progress. And I think that we've reached the point now where 
we're, we're stuck with a whole lot of concepts. So that when Michael Moore speaks about the number of people who make all this money and the number of people who don't, it sounds as if we're struggling for equality with them. Who wants to be equal to these guys? People are beginning to say the only way to survive is by taking care of one another by recreating our relationships to one another, that we have created a society over the last period in particular where each of us is pursuing self-interest. We have devolved as human beings. And that was the late Grace Lee Boggs. Special thanks to Rich Feldman for hosting us at the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership in Detroit. And Rich was nice enough to give us a tour of the Boggs Home and Center. It is packed with really interesting stuff intact from the time Grace Lee Boggs was there, books, videos, all sorts of things. We enjoyed seeing and hearing about the history that was made there, and we have made a video to show you it, and you can check it out on our Facebook page at WBEZ Worldview Facebook page and uh, check out our video of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center. Thanks a lot for uh, thanks for a lot for checking it out. Coming up after the break, Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll find out about the years of study it takes to properly learn to play the triangle. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with music and culture writer Catalina Maria Johnson. She hosts the Beat Latino program for Vocalo. While we were on our tour of the Great Lakes, we visited Sunfest, the global music festival in London, Ontario. Catalina Maria Johnson had this chat with the fun-loving members of the UK-based group The Turbans. We're here at Sunfest 2019. It's an amazing experience. It's right across the border from Chicago, so you can really actually experience it fairly easily. Um, London, Ontario, 25 years of Sunfest. And this is a band that I actually ran across in other settings called The Turbans. Now, this is not a turban. <laughs> uh, Oshan is wearing a Mexican hat, I think. Which was just passed to Which was just passed artist. to him. <laughs> And I'm here with Oshan and Wade and Maxime, who is one of the most amazing triangle players I've ever seen in my life. And the band members of the Turbans come from everywhere. So, Oshan, tell us... Manywhere. Manywhere. <laughs> tell us where yeah. everybody comes from. Well, as Wade said, we don't say everywhere because we're not from everywhere. Um, we say manywhere because that best describes the, the, the backgrounds we come from. We actually have one member who's not here who's from Turkey and when he first met us he couldn't speak English at all now normally when you travel around you meet you know people know a few words hello goodbye thank you he only knew yes and <laughs> we traveled with him to India and in India he sort of learned to speak a bit of English and people would ask him you know where is the band from and he would go oh manywhere manywhere you know so it sort of stuck for us as a band um, but right now here we have 
um, someone from England, Israel, USA, Belarus, Iraq, someone else. I'm half Iranian, half English, and I know I'm missing someone in the band. A Canadian! We took a Canadian. But he's French. Yeah, French Canadian. French Canadian. Um, But basically our aim is travel around, meet musicians from different countries, play with them, bring them together, show that it doesn't matter where you're from, uh, music is a territorial-less genre and art and it really brings people together. So we always try and give a message in our concerts of one people, one planet, and, and that's our ethos at the end of the day so <laughs> and the music that you play it draws from everywhere from like Romani music Klezmer music Middle Eastern music and everybody of all ages and all colors and all sizes were dancing along <laughs> it was a beautiful thing yeah. so tell us more about where your music comes from specifically okay. or how you put it together yeah the key of the band is a traveling band we haven't stopped moving for 10 years although now I would say our base is in London, England still every winter we travel around Max for example lives in India we go and spend half the year there and because it's traveling wherever we go we learn what the people play and we, we're influenced by the, by the places that we come to and for example Max we met him in India and we just saw him and thought he's such an amazing guy and we said you know come come on stage you know and he played guitar and and uh, and I was like you know but I'm the guitarist what else can you play and he's like well I'm a triangle player so <laughs> so for Max's first concerts with the turbans he played triangle that's well, his that's his thing yeah well we have to Max is an amazing triangle player I, I never thought like a triangle could make that kind of sound and so quickly so we're going to get a little demonstration here of Max's triangle playing well, not many people know, but a triangle has many sides to it. And I'm going to demonstrate just a few of them. <laughs> so, such a tiny little three-sided thing and t- tell us more about how did you pick up the triangle and, 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 and why? <laughs> well, traveling in India I uh, met a guru and he instructed me with the arts of the triangle for about six years learning every side Really? Yes. <laughs> no, 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 it's just a joke. <laughs> um, but I, I did. I did pick. I did pick it up in India. Um, there's a wonderful place we we all used to meet up in, in in Goa, and every evening during sunset time, everybody would come to the beach and play drums, like djembes and and shakers, and make a big fiesta out of it. So I always wanted to be heard the loudest, and the triangle is a perfect instrument for that. It just cuts through all the sounds and people that just arrived to the beach said, hey, I just came to the beach and I followed the triangle sounds and I knew I can find you. So it's also an instrument for music but also to gather all your friends around you. So Wade, tell us more about your participation in the turbans. Yes, I, my name is Wade. I'm, I'm from Utah 
and uh, I know I know these guys from from India also. I live in India a portion of every year, uh, where I actually I do study sitar. I have a I have a guru that I study with. <laughs> this is true. This yeah, this, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not just pulling. How many yeah, years? Yeah. Uh, 16, 17 years now I've been studying with him. Does he let you perform live now? He does. Now, after about 13 years of study with with him, he finally gave me his blessing to perform live. So so now I am a performing sitarist. I'm a classically trained sitarist. But uh, I, I joined the Turbans because I love these guys. And uh, when they come to North America, this tour, they needed a bassist. So so I said, well, I even I can play the bass, <laughs> and uh, so I, I procured a bass and learned the tunes, and it gave me an in. Yes. The name? Why the turbans? It's a difficult one. I mean, th- there's two stories. One of the stories is that uh, one of the band members who's not here just wrote it down, and that was it. But that story is a little bit boring. So the other story is that how the band started was actually we were cycling we traveled with bicycles with our instruments from India all the way across to Istanbul and so on and uh, we wore turbans not as a any cultural thing but just to keep the sun off our head and but every country that you pass through all the way to Eastern Europe people wear turbans so so yeah we wore turbans and known as the turbans you know um, another name that we were known as in Istanbul were the princes of Istiklal. <laughs> of what? <laughs> of one of the roads, because we used to play on the streets a lot. Buskers? As buskers. And, yeah, some of the, some of the other musicians used to call us the princes of Istiklal, because we'd also wear these amazing three-piece suits that we'd bought in India and, and then play on the street and stuff like that. But... Yeah. Anyway, the, the the magic of the band is the passion of the musicians. That's that's the unifying thing. Not what style they play, not where they come from. None of that really matters. But for us, the most important thing is chutzpah, spirit, passion, um, and love for music and love to share. Because you can be an amazing musician at home, but you're not rising up the the consciousness and the spirit of the world and we want to do that and we want people to join in with us when we do that that's why we try and get everyone dancing to the turbans here at Sunfest. It's a delight. Oh, we're playing the USA. Our label is from the USA. Our label is from the States. So we, we, this is actually, we're going in three days for the first time to the States. Not in Chicago. I know. Tell Chicago, invite us. <laughs> invite the turbans. Invite the turbans to Chicago. We want to come and play there. <laughs> That's Oshan Mahoney of The Turbans and Catalina Maria Johnson, our music and culture writer here on uh, Global Notes, our segment on global music. We'll go out on a bit more music from The Turbans. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Yeah.